Sport Calgary is the voice of over 275 sports organizations in the Calgary area. Share your voice and become a Sport Calgary member for free at sportcalgary.ca slash members. Hey, 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 hey. Hi, kids, and welcome to the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. I get to talk to a friend today. Um, one of the original guys that I wanted to get on when, when I was thinking about doing this podcast. It took a while, and for me anyway, not for him. As soon as I asked him, he said, yeah, I'm in, I'm done, let's go, let's go. Uh, he is quickly becoming one of the most important and popular sports names, sports celebrities, sports influencers, important sport people in Calgary, period, end of story. And he is Tommy Wielden Jr. of the Cavalry. Um, we are going to explain a little bit of the history that Tommy and I have together, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, Tommy's a lot of things. Tommy's a big picture guy, and Tommy gets things done. And I have a ton of respect for Tommy Wielded Jr. Now, a little bit of, uh, we'll edit it up a little tight, but a little bit of a wonky connection at times. So bear with us. Uh, it's not going to impact the messaging. The messages are all there, and it's well, well worth your while. Just a reminder Calgary is home to world class multi sport facilities. Find the facility closest to you at sportcalgary.ca. Let's. Uh, Let's head off and spend a little time with the manager, shall we? The guy in charge, uh, the man with the vision, uh, Tommy Wielden Jr. It's funny, uh, us on the hockey side can look at a couple of lockouts and go, well, you know, we didn't have hockey for a while, but never seen anything like this. There's no equivalent for this, right? Yeah, I think this is, um, someone said to me once about this is, I guess this is our war. You know, it's a war against the virus. It's a war against what we've been doing for our own uh, normality, our own livelihoods. Um, you know, but the way you separate it is if during the war of our ancestors, they put their life at risk to fight it for freedom. We're, we're being asked to stay in, inside with electronics, with food, um, and we're finding it hard. So I guess every generation is a bit different. Um, I think we've just got to try and take the positives from it, and that's the only way we can really move forward. Tommy, where were you in terms of when this all began? You guys had already begun training, correct? Yeah, yeah. so for us, it's quite a long off-season anyway. If you think, you know, our last game was in November, beginning of November. We had December, January, February, and the boys started reporting back in around Valentine's Day. You know, whilst my wife thought it was a romantic time of year, I think I was just more excited to, to get with the with the with the players again. <laughs> so that's why I had love in my eyes. Football was always my first love, so um, it's uh, it was an interesting time. But yeah, we'd we'd had a couple of weeks. We'd literally had two full weeks of training. We'd had a couple of you know into squads into you know a practice game, and we're actually you know I was just really impressed with the rhythm, the speed of which we had adapted the off-season plans that the boys had been on. And then slam shut, you know, it was a 14-day notice initially from the league that's now gone into, we're going into week eight next week. As a manager, what's that conversation like with your team? I mean, when you have to deliver that news, right? You've delivered bad news before. That's part of the gig, but this is a little unique. It was something that we were aware of that was happening you know we'd seen what would happen in china that then had gone into shutdown but it's it's interesting your first thought is always that's ah, not going to affect us it's not going to affect me you know we're in canada we're away from things we're uh, very cohesive here we've got good um good health care etc and then as it starts 
scored across the globe and then Italy gets a big hit and you're like, wow, Italy's not even close to China. How's it then hit there? And then it started it in Spain. And then, you know, we're like, okay, now suddenly we were on shutdown. So as that had happened, you know, I sat with our staff and said, have you seen this thing that's happening with the coronavirus? You know, it's shutting things down. If that happens, do we have, you know, training plans in place like our off season to keep ticking over until we get through it? And fortunately, into that second week of training, we started to plan some things before we were shut down. So um, we managed to get a little bit ahead of it. Difficult for you to get your your players back home. I mean, you, you have them from all over, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we did was the first fourteen days was. Um, isolation in their residence they were were in town and then after that you know after that home isolation they then got given the um the opportunity to go home so that was even some of the international guys and and we didn't have any internationals that said you know what we're going to go home so they've stayed all the way through to you know this month they said let's at least stay through to april um but now you can see they're a little bit antsy that you know for them it's about mental health as mu- as much as it is now keeping them physically active. I think mental health and mental uh, wellness is probably more important at a time of crisis. So we've spoke with each player individually about what their needs are. You know, even during you know Easter, you know, my wife is a is a very caring person, and and she'd put together little care packages for the guys in town and dropped it on the doorstep for them and had put the little sanitizers around it <laughs> just to show, hey guys, we're thinking of you. We can't be together because we cre- we had created this culture where we ate breakfast together, we trained. We ate lunch together and then they trained again or they went home, depending on the day. And So we became very accustomed to, you know, in a biblical sense, is breaking bread together. So we just started offering these acts of kindness uh, internally to keep everyone happy. And I think that goes a long, long way. So it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're really focused now on the next chapter. Now we've done almost two months is what does month three look like and who needs what and how and when, um, and just trying to keep them uh, as, as mentally prepared as possible. Just from a leadership standpoint, have you kind of, how's it, you know, manifested itself with you? I'm sure early on, you know, we're in touch and everything, but now week after week, it seems to be the same thing. Do you find that you kind of have to turn your motor over? It takes a little more to get going and, and kind of keeping everybody in the loop? Definitely. Um, I think anytime there's a challenge, you know, I've always been the type of person. I've never really had like a lot of top coaches out there or, or top managers, top leaders. I don't feel I was blessed with a lot of talent. Um, so I had to come up a bit of the hard way and, and, and earn my way to where I've become. So for me, the bigger the challenge, the more I wanted to, to grind through it and, and rise. So I just saw this as a challenge. And, you know, I've, I've got a fantastic coaching staff around me who give me different perspectives. So Martin Nash is, you know, fantastic, great sporting background, as you know. And he gives me a different perspective. Jordan Santiago, our goalie coach, a little younger, he gives me another perspective. Leon Hapgood is a dear friend of mine. He's still with Foothills, but... A, a good shoulder to bounce off and, and our president as you know Ian Allison yeah. you know he comes from a different world and, and one of experience and he's seen competition at top levels and I think when you when you surround yourself with people like that you, you tend to bounce off each other because what's important to everyone through this time is that when you present to your team you present that element of positivity you present that this is a challenge today 
and you try to keep the players as task orientated as possible. Um, and every couple of weeks, every year, two weeks, I'd say we have a captain's call. So Nick Ledgerwood, um, and then there's Mason Trafford and Elijah Adekubi are the assistant captains. Uh, and myself and the coaching staff just sit with them and in, in terms of on a video call and uh, ask them how they are, ask them for, you know, the pulse checks, what are the players saying to them, that, you know, and I'm not asking for them to disclose anything untoward, but, you know, how are they feeling if they're, if they're putting on a defensive front with us so we can address it? And case in point, we just noticed there's a bit of fatigue happening with the boys. Uh, they were training hard. Um, at first, it was in the snow. Now it's at least they can get outside. So that was really good for them. But uh, Martin um, asked his brother Steve to um, join us on one of our training sessions. So literally this morning on our Friday session, he, he turned up as a surprise guest and <laughs> started limbering up with the lads. And then it went and it just got a little bit lighthearted. And then we had, you know, Trent McClellan, who did our pub night last uh, last week, who's a, who's a comedian and a fantastic human being. Isn't he? Um, yeah. Just, I mean, you've met him. Yeah. He's, he just he's so positive, but he, he he's able to find light and wisdom as well. Like he's he's got a great head on his shoulders. But he did our pub night last week, and you could tell with the boys we did a virtual thing. He put a smile on their face, so we invited him into this training session. So as Steve's doing a bit of the limbering up, and then Martin did some of the technical sessions, and Trent was in the background. Um, what is your network? saying to you because you know your sport is one that is global you have contacts you kind of mentioned off the top some of mm -hmm. the places where they started i'm just curious what you're hearing mm -hmm. from you know coaches and managers in other leagues and and around the world what you know they're doing to adapt to this and if that's helping you at all i tell you the big lift we had was um, the news from jason kenny yesterday about the golf courses in alberta and especially for, for calgarians being open because um I think everybody just went, oof, you know, now suddenly I think everybody's going to, you know, uh, Tiger Woods or Michelle Wee and uh, just go, go out there and start playing. And um, I think it's important that those type of things are the start of almost socialization again. But in, in terms of our sport, it's, it's a difficult one because I'm, I remain positive that we'll find a way to get through this and, and have some type of a season, whether it's a, a fall season, whether it's, you know, um, a tournament style, just anything to get out and, and, and competing again. Because otherwise, you know, from an athlete's perspective, when you finished in 2019 in November and all of 2020 is a lockdown and you don't resume until March of, you know, uh, 2021, suddenly you've got players that have not really played for 18 months. And I'm not sure how healthy or how good a product that will be. And I'm sure we'll find ways to get through it. But you, you, you wonder on that side. So I, I start looking like every day I wake up and have a coffee and I'm looking through Twitter for, for updates of what leagues are doing what. And you see, yeah. right, um, you know, the, the NFL are talking about this. The NBA are talking about that. Um, and in my sport, you know, it, it's split down the middle because you see in France, I said, nope, we're not playing. Done. PSG are champions and being ruthless with it. The Dutch and, and, and the Belgians have done the same. Um, Germany are saying, no, no, we're going to finish this season. England are assessing their, what they're doing. MLS are in a different calendar, but they're trying to resume what they started. And then you look at China, where it all started, and they're going to be back playing as well as the Korean League here shortly. So everywhere is a bit different, and you're going to either be guilty of jumping to the gun 
and saying, right, we're going to get ahead of this. And then suddenly there's a secondary outbreak and everyone says, you know, we'll point the blame at, you know, everyone was a bit wayward. Uh, or you're going to say, well, why didn't we follow that? And I think it's a tough, tough situation for the government officials, the health organizations and the governing bodies to be in because you're not going to win either way. Managers manage. Does not matter what the circumstance is. How much time do you spend a day on tactics and strategy right now? Very good question. Um, without revealing all of us, actually, um, <laughs> we uh, we now I'll share with you because there's coaches and people out there. We um we always talk about trying to be a cerebral group. We're very connected, and one of our biggest DNA was we we looked into every single game as a chess match and how we would use the strengths of what we had to expose the weaknesses of the other and how we'd also you know try and nullify the strengths of the other team much like most most coaches and managers should really to be honest but um how do you do it when you're not playing so we we just basically reviewed our past season you know what we thought was really good what we thought could be better and what was the best version of ourselves and then once we'd done that I actually put it to the players. So now they were working in groups. So they'd have a two-week challenge to say, right, here's our first five games of the season. Here's our second five games of the season, you know, third and so forth. Here's our cup run. You know, so they all had a group there and they would review and they'd look at it and then they would report back and say, well, I thought we did this really good. However, this is where we struggled a bit. And, you know, if we get back to training, this is what we need to uh, adapt and overcome. Um and what it ended up doing is, is as it was as it was going through, sometimes the players pick up things that you as a coach or your coaching staff have not seen. So I think it's really, really good exercise because they were presenting with detail. They were presenting with um, quality and they were presenting from experience. So I think when as a coach now, I mean, <laughs> I can show you, but we're on the podcast, I've got notes here from all the calls that we take, yep. you know, and the, and the, and what the players are saying, and I'm like, they've got some exceptional detail. So then the next challenge for that was, okay, which teams do we aspire to be towards? So we look at you know some of the top teams in Europe and how they attack in a certain way, how they defend high up the pitch or low down the pitch, and that was our second tactical analysis. So we actually have gone as much as we've done our physical wellness and our tactical bit. Um, as well as now, you know, things for the mental, we actually study, we're, we're studying and I found it to be very, very positive amongst the players. And and such a unique opportunity, right? You, there's no other circumstance that one would be thrust into this or do this. So I, I and of course, it's like baking. We won't know how the cake turns mm-hmm. out until we can put it in the oven. So I guess you got to wait a while. Um, hey, if I came into that office of yours right now and I looked at that desk, how many different scenarios for return do you have? How many plans do you have, strategies do you have in place to, to bring your squad back together? Yeah, several. I mean, that's it because the, the players are always asking, you know, you know is it any updates? Are we, are we back to even small group training? Because they, they, they read the news. They, yeah. They're in touch with it. And they're trying to be hopeful. And I think hope is a powerful uh, drug through all of this. So it's important that we maintain that. Um, but for us, we're looking at, you know, really – we would only have had three games so far. We would have opened up on the 18th away at Forge and then we'd have played Edmonton and then we'd have had our home opener um, against York 9 on the 25th. I still feel that you know, we, if we were given the green light today to return to training, it would have to be in small groups. And in small groups, how fit can you actually get the players to game conditions? Right. And if you don't get them to game conditions, 
you're putting them at risk of injuries and some of them can be career ending or, you know, season ending. So is it four weeks, the minimum that we can get them into game shape? And when once we've got four weeks, how much of a season does that then give us? And does that season allow us to play two thirds of a season? Does it allow us to play in the cup competition, the Canadian championship, which is vitally important for the country, I think. Um, and then from that, as you start working backwards from the return to, to play, um, and I think we've looked at everything from, uh, I said, the, the two-thirds to a, a full season. If it's Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, can we fit it in? And if it is, then we're going to use our, all of our roster and rotate the lineup um, because of fear of injury. Um, also, you know, FIFA have put out, you know, in, in football, we, we can only have three subs, as you know, through the course of the competition. But mm-hmm. FIFA are recognising that maybe they'll adjust that to five. And you oh. can have maybe a, a bonus sub at half time just just because of fatigue. Um, yeah. That, that's significant, eh, Tommy? Players. That's significant. Massive. Yeah. Massive. Because if you think, you know, being hockey, hockey, a roll on, roll off, you know, um, basketball, there's lots of changes. So when fatigue hits, you can freshen some legs with, with soccer. And they run, the average player, you know, can run anywhere between mm-hmm. 10 to, to 13 to 14K a game. Uh, and you only have three subs. They're covering a lot of ground. And then you're traveling, you know, Saturday, you're, you're on the plane coming back home, you're recovering, and then you're playing again Wednesday and requiring the same. So it, fatigue will help uh, hurt. So I think that's a really significant suggestion. I got to ask you about the strength of your club year one was the connection with the fans. I mean, you were really good on the pitch, not taking anything away mm-hmm. from that, mm-hmm. but just a superb connection to the fans in year one. Um, it's been fun watching you on social media as an organization and even you uh, staying connected. Can you just talk a little bit about the strategy and, and what you've tried to do to, you know, continue to build what is a, still a, a fairly new franchise? Yeah, it is. And I think when you and I used to talk about this <laughs> back on the radio about how you build it. And I say, oh, we're going to build professional football and this is how we're going to do it. And that's coming from, uh, it's hard to call the Calgary storm in the USL a, a failed franchise, but it did, it folded. Um, so I'd seen that there wasn't a connection like I grew up with. Yeah. And, and then I started, st- it was interesting. I go on a, on a journey here. Please, um, please. <laughs> I, I like to study like social gathering. I like to study things work and i think that from you know the game i i was passed on to everton my team and people ask me why i was born in, in liverpool and everton's a, a suburb within liverpool my dad supported them his dad supported them and then when i came here and, and wondered why there was so many many kids playing soccer but not many of them had a team they would wear a manchester united jersey to a summer camp or they'd wear barcelona and, and then i would look at american sports and i looked at you know hockey and then you know the cfl and i thought Aha, we're missing. It was generational. It was something that meant something to someone. So you look now at college football in the States. You went to that school and everyone went there and you're proud alumni, right? So you then you know, carry that crest for the rest of your life. That's part of your identity. Um, and I think what we try to do in recognizing that if you're a Calgary Flames fan, it's because, you know, your dad support them or you're local from Calgary and you've come up through this and this is your team, and, you know, and, and it transcends. So one of the biggest things we recognized is that we were creating, we were our first world country and we're delivering a third world football product. And the only way this game was going to move forward was obviously you need owners that are willing to take a risk on, uh, on a, on a top sport 
that hadn't necessarily had much success in this country. So that was most important. Um, then you needed, you know, your, your coaching staff and your playing staff. You needed the talent uh, to put a team together. And then as important as the ownership behind it is the supporters that are going to pay to watch. You know, they may not see. It's like planting a seed yeah. for which your shadow you'll never see. Yeah. And I think that's true for the Southern family and what they've done with Spruce Meadows. And, you know, the legacy is carrying on now through through Linda um, and through Mrs. Southern uh, uh, in building the cavalry in the Canadian Premier League. Which brings me to the point that when we were designing where fans sat, we knew where we would come out, so we designed where the locker rooms are, just just behind um, on the on the uh, east side of the stadium. We had the foot soldiers group who supported the team I'd managed, the Calgary Foothills, and we'd had success as we signed off. And then they grew, you know. So it's gone from a, a group of five or six guys to now. Last meeting over Christmas was about 200. So we said, look, let's get them as the heartbeat of this stadium. And then let's move around. So the best seating in the grandstand then became, you know, the corporate crowd that really wanted a nice place to take clients and a football experience that they could be in the middle. And then the other end opposite the foot soldiers end would be the family section where kids could be on on the grass. Um, you know, families could be there. Like my family, we bought, I think, eight to ten season tickets and, we, and my family sits there. And then you've got now the... The, the prestige of the Congress Hall, which is the officers club where a lot of the directors sit, a lot of league officials sit, and if you want to go for food and things like that. So what we tried to create was a dollar value for every experience you wanted to have. So is it because interesting people, when you put out your, your, your price point, the natural human behavior is to go to the most expensive one and say, I can't afford that. And we were a club that said, and you know, this was Spruce Meadows. We don't hide anything. We reveal everything and then educate along the way. So we had ticket prices for as cheap as $13 to get in the stadium. And then, you know, I think our grandstand, our most expensive, which came with parking pass and, you know, uh, Canada House entry was about $80. And then in the in our corporate suites with meals and after and press conference and all the shebang, it was about $200. So because so we'd advertised that, everyone jumped to that. Wow, I can't, that's going to, no, it will never work. Words that we'd always heard it will never work. And then suddenly when you start talking with people and say, well, how much would you be willing to pay? Oh, you know, I'd pay 25 bucks, maybe 50 bucks top. So then suddenly we started to say, that's it. So uh, what that helped us with was talking with our fans. Yeah. We then created a lot of these nights because we were getting a lot of FAQs that this. So all we did was we, we just went on a bit of an educational trip and listened to our fans. You know, they would say, this is okay. 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 That's what we want on a game day. You know, we, we tried to create smoke in the, you know, it's a big soccer thing and it didn't work. And we talked with our fans and we met with them. I remember Ian had gone met with them after an incident. And I tell you, it was that back and forth that we weren't trying to say this is how we support a team because they authentically created songs. They created, you know, a march to the mats. They created these, you know, pub before and ship in, ship out, um, you know, Kildares and Rosencrown and Ship and Anchor. And they all started putting on. And we we seen... We, we, we couldn't, we didn't want to stifle them. We wanted to say, look, these are the options we have. It has to be organic. Um, and I think our average crowd was about three and a half, four thousand, which as a first year team was remarkable. And we continue to listen to our fans. And one of the things we said that we would do during this time was we say, look, we'll try and reach out to them. You know, everybody's got their own battles to bear. 
but our fans are important because without them, we're not a team. So we created a virtual pub night and that's where Trent, like yeah. I said, had come in and we just entertained them. And it wasn't just like a Q and a or, 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 or webinar. It was funny reactions with the players. It was, you know, histories and emotive connections. And, and for maybe that hour, hour and 15 minutes, however long it was, we just wanted to have them escape from the norm. And I think when we do return from this, those sounds and feelings that you get when you go to Echo Field at Spruce Meadows, the noises that the foot soldiers and the fans create, that will just send shivers down everyone's spines. And, and that's the feeling I think we all miss. Um, and yeah, I think we continue to listen to our fans. We know we're not perfect by any shape or st- but but we'll listen enough and we'll try and do everything we can to accommodate. And I think that's a, a great ethos that runs through our club. The other one that I'm a big fan of what you do is is the connection to the kids coming up and youth and youth football mm-hmm. players. And that, this has been an interesting testing ground, I think, the last two months of what works. Now, you you came up, my understanding is you came up with a very interesting challenge. The back Was that you that came up with the backpack challenge? Uh, no, I was challenged by friends. Oh, friends okay. And, um, Wayne Cleverly had been challenged and uh, he did it and I just thought, you know what, I was out with my kid and uh, he was trying it, so I thought, I've got to give it a go. And then I, I challenged the cavalry players to do it and it, it had a bit of fun and actually at first you think, oh, this is complicated, but then you get it and then you start getting a rhythm and then you start becoming like a Harlem Globetrotter. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a bit of fun. Yeah, it was. Um, Listen, you did a really nice job of kind of explaining the cavalry, but I think the one piece when I write, when somebody writes the Tommy Wielden Jr. book, and I eagerly look forward to reading it, there will have to be a chapter entitled "The Long Game," and I yeah. want to ask you about that because it it appears to me now in hindsight that while you point to you know some things in North American sport and the NHL and stuff like that, the one thing Tommy that you did that we do not see in North American sport is play the long game because mm-hmm. what you, what we saw last year, you talked openly about in 2014, you knew yeah. in 2016 that this was the end goal. And while we dismissed it because we all live in the here and now you had the fortitude to say, we need to build. That is not a North American trait. A North American trait is to drop the money. Let's mm-hmm. go. We want it now. How, I mean, was it by necessity? Was it by design? But tell me how you played the long game. Um, and probably led me to why I wanted to stay in Calgary and stay in Canada, because I think 25 is, or 24 maybe, is an early time to retire from professional football. And I, and I didn't have a, a long career or even a top career. I would have had about, about, about five years in the pro game. And I had some good memories from it, and it gave me a good grounding. But I had opportunities to play in the States and back in Europe, and I thought I could be a bit, a bit of a globetrotter and chase the ball, um, really. But I also thought I love this country, and I love the ideals of this country, and it was like a blank canvas. And like I said before, it was you know, a first-world country with a third-world product. And I thought if there's anything I know how to do is, is to tell a story and to build um, and I'm okay with rolling my sleeves up and, and, and doing the dirty and getting out there and, and, and working hard to get there. So I, I think I just came by, honestly, I'm fortunate because, as you know, my dad was a coach and he coached the Calgary Storm as well. And you know, so I had a good upbringing on that side and I seen the type of work he did. Um, you know, my brother was a, a young player coming up through the ranks and now plays for me. 
So I think in the Wielden household, we we had that honest hard work about us, not 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 afraid to do it. But I think the long game really was based out of a necessity. So I think in part of this, I knew in order for it to come back, which it needed to be because it had been here before. And, you know, we've had the Calgary Boomers in the NASL days. And, you know, I used to draw large crowds at McMahon Stadium. Um, I think we just had to play the long game. We couldn't just throw money at it and think everybody's going to turn up. You attract supporters by the dollar vote and they come one by one. And um, every time I went to a supporters club meeting or went to a, a board meeting at a soccer organization and talked about a pathway, I would talk about these bridges. This is what we need next. And that was why we built that under 23, you mm-hmm. know, Calgary Footers PDL side was because, you know, we didn't have a WHL where, you know, they could jump from youth soccer into professional soccer. You needed a bridge. We created that. Um, it's now still being run by Leon Hapgood and, uh, it still creates the best university players coming out. So I think, yeah, it was a bit of a necessity and uh, and part of what's needed. And I tell you what now, it's interesting because I'd have been going into my second year now with the cavalry and the players would have been logging some you know, vital minutes. And we all know that through this, we're all going to be sacrificing a year of development almost. Um, but in doing so, it's going to make us appreciate every opportunity we get when we come out of it. That and, again, you just didn't come up with the idea last year that you've had to be patient through this. Like, I mean, this isn't ideal. Nobody's saying it's ideal, Tommy. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that in, yeah. in a way, you know, five or six years of hard and, – and I know this, and, and, and you're too kind to say, but you would have run into a bunch of people that wouldn't have, would have looked at you like you had three eyes in your head because, again, why aren't you doing it tomorrow? We need this tomorrow sort of thing. I, I think that's the, sure. the the strength of this entire story, is that it wasn't a it wasn't you know overnight or anything. There's a lot to your point, dude. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in this story. Yeah, it's funny. Um, a friend of mine within the game, uh, Frank Chofi, had said because uh, he's seen some of the work behind the scenes we've done. It for he was a coach with another club, then he got into the provincial program, then he coached with us for briefly, and he. And he smiles, he's very nice, um, and he said that look, people talk about, you know, the cavalry or, you know, Tommy now, you're like an overnight success. And he said, when in reality, it's a 10-year in the waiting, he said, in the build. People have forgot the other nine years or the other 10 years prior um, that, that has led to this. And I, and I believe it, the, you know, the pyramid is only as high as the foundation you build. And I think what's been done behind the closed doors and behind the lights, away from the lights and the cameras, is uh, is the building, the foundation. And I think that's why now, as testing and as challenging as this is for every single ownership group and every single sport and every, every industry, the strength of the owners now, um, because the, the ones with the strong foundations like the Southern family, yeah. they're built for a legacy. So they weren't just doing it overnight. They'd done their research on the game and what it could mean to the country. And we also have to attach ourselves to the 2026 World Cup coming through as one of the host countries. And, you know, it's that's that's the why behind this league is important to create more Canadians. So, so one last one on this, and I, I do want to go to a different direction, but in our previous lives, when you were our World Cup analyst and, and we would talk football, you had one, once mentioned about the possibility of bringing over a, an English side or another European side for training. Mm-hmm. I haven't forgot that. 
Is that something mm-hmm. that is still a goal, a dream to, to have something like that happen in our city? Yeah, definitely. Teams need training venues. Um, so there, there could be a bit of a pivot and switch in, in terms of that. That's, that's an aspirational um, thing. We also know that, you know, bring, bringing teams over for pre-seasons is something now the, the league is discussing because does that fit with, you know, the calendar? Because we're in season and the, the European leagues are out of season in um, you know, they return, they end in the beginning of May, return in uh, in August. So that would be smack bang in the middle. But I think I think it would be uh, fantastic if, if we had, you know, other clubs come across because you've seen the MLS do it now with their All-Star game. They yeah. have, you know, Atletico Madrid was the one of the last ones to come over. So it's definitely a possibility. And uh, we've we've not shied away from it. We've just got to make sure we get our timing right. And, and this year, you know, everything's on lockdown. So next year will be, you know, part of the rebuild again. And then who knows the year after that? Uh, he is Tommy Wielden Jr. Uh, from Cavalry FC, our guest here on the original Six Feet uh, conversation for Sport Calgary. Sport Calgary acts as a resource for sports organizations with a ton of information available at sportcalgary.ca. Learn about community and coaching resources, research, jobs, and, of course, the latest in Calgary sport. You mentioned your father. You mentioned your family. Uh, you mentioned Liverpool. Was it always football for you growing up? Uh, that was the, definitely the passion, but it was interesting because because um, my dad was a player as well. I didn't really start playing nine, and my son is ten, and he's been playing since you four. Um, so, and and it was always one of those things that my parents had said, you know, if, as long as he's passionate about something, that's what we'll support. So, if it happens to be another sport, or maybe it's art, maybe it's drama, um, then do it. But I tell you, going through school, much like here, is that. You know, everyone talks about multi-sport athletes, and I think it's it's important for the fundamental development. You and I have had several conversations on this. Yes, we have. I I, I really encourage a lot of the soccer players to get involved in their school teams because the, their evenings sometimes are overloaded, and seasons are now crossing over. You know, you've got soccer in the winter, you've got hockey in the summer. Yeah. So now a lot of clubs are, are, are forcing the hand there, but where the flexibility lies is in physical education during the schools and joining the basketball team. So for me, I grew up and I played for the school cricket team um, and I played you know, rugby growing up and I realized I was not as tough as I would like to have been. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I played uh, soccer, but I'd put my feet in where you know the rugby players would put their heads in. Um, but I, I, I have a great deep appreciation for it. And then when I came over here, I can't skate to save my life, but I can appreciate a you know a 250 pound athlete skating down the field on these thin blades with a puck and 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 some of the skills that go into that and and the moves that they have and then the balance to go past the player and the defender like i'm captivated by it and then i watch these nfl documentaries and i look at how the wide receivers run and they cut this side cut that way and how the running backs just can their agility and I take bits off of every single sport now. And I think that's what's made me a curious learner is um, I think you've got to, you've got to have time away from your own sport. And in fact, after our tactical discussion with our players, I've encouraged them now to go away and watch, you know, the current documentaries going on. Cause there's some great ones out there, like the last dance yes. with Michael Jordan, yeah. you know, the Amazon prime all or nothings with, you know, documenting the NFL teams, formula one. Like I, I like Formula One, but I got engrossed in it. And you learn so much through culture, through what it takes to be Lewis Hamilton at the top of the pole, week in, week out, four years in a row. Um, 
it takes a special DNA and it takes a special mindset. And I think it's important that athletes switch gears that way to, to excuse the pun. <laughs> you and I are of a certain vintage that our youth would have been spent with less time in front of, you know, computers and the Internet and, and that. What what did sport play a role in, in terms of the entertainment of your life? Were you, you know, not knowing what, you know, was available to you? Did you spend a lot of time watching football? Did you spend a lot of time watching sports from other European countries? What Where did sport or, or fandom of sport fit for you as a youth? Yeah, so everything's changed. We had more access to live games because even when I moved away from Liverpool and moved down to, to Plymouth or Torquay, uh, which is in South Devon, and then Swindon, which is, you know, not far from Stonehenge. They all had games. So, Dad, if we if we, play, we could go. The difficulty was, was if we were playing on a Saturday and they had Saturday, it, you know, it would be tough to go to games. But we had access to live games. We didn't have access to streamed live games that this current generation has. Uh, so we would watch Match of the Day, which is, you know, kind of like our coverage. So, so we'd have that. Um, but in terms of our community... I think the the other difference I see is that we would grow up in a in a community where you uh, you'd, you'd, there'd be a field nearby, and you'd go down and play. So you'd be down there and you'd play football. And then maybe you know in the summer someone might bring out a cricket bat and you, you'd play a bit of cricket. Or you know, you know what you might just go and climb trees. And I think you know that's fundamental movements that perhaps this generation are losing because it's you know it's multi sport sampling. You know, now it's called parkour, where you're jumping. Things. We used to climb walls and jump over trees and yeah, yeah. things like that. I was never backflipping to that, but you sampled that. You, you know, I got into a bit of skateboarding. Now, as I've turned into my 40s, I've now got into longboarding. But I go back to, I started skateboarding a little bit as a, as a, as a teenager. And now I've gone back to it. So I think being outside and being able to play with your friends and unstructured, I think that's, that's key. What about North American sports growing up, Tommy? I mean, you, you know, you're, as you say, you know, proudly Canadian now, and, and you recognize, mm-hmm. you know, what we have over here. But growing up, were you exposed much to, to North American sports? Yeah, we had a basketball team, and I couldn't make the team. I was terrible at it. <laughs> um, I was of average size and build, uh, decent athletically, but uh, I could play in goal, I could play rugby if, if I needed to. So I could not, I could not, manage i couldn't get my angles right looking up it's weird like I, I guess i could look forward and look at players around the field i could dribble with the with the ball at my feet i had this great peripheral vision in that way i just couldn't i can't figure out the basket net the angle in which you got to get it <laughs> so it, it, it's it's bizarre i think i was terrible at every single american sport because i couldn't skate um and it's funny because we talked about Lee Brathwaite. Yeah, you and I had that uh, this is the most amazing funny. story. Yeah, I went to school with a kid who was a year older than me. And um, I remember he left for the University of Saskatchewan with this really long name. And I'm like, how do you spell that? And uh, he's like, I'm going to go and play ice hockey because we don't call it hockey because yep. we have field hockey. Yep. He's like, I'm going to go play ice hockey. I'm going to do a scholarship in the university. Of We're like, really? And he ends up coming out there and... I, I do have to share the story. So Tommy and I have known each other since 2014, but this past fall he was kind enough to be one of our presenters at our uh, Hockey Inspires Leadership Day, and you were uh, taking questions from kids, and, and somebody asked you about hockey, and you said, yeah, we, I grew up with a kid. And and 
you mentioned the name Lee Brathwaite, and Lee Brathwaite was an Estevan Bruin when I was in Estevan, Saskatchewan. I he was a story because he was an English hockey player in Saskatchewan, and it's amazing how small the world got just right in that moment. Yeah, that's it's crazy. And then a friend of mine that was in his class, he, he still sees him from time to time, and he asked about me being out in Canada now. So it's yeah, it's As it, it, yeah, it's weird, weird and wonderful, isn't it? How did you? Okay, so dad came to Canada first or who came to Canada first? My dad. It's, and that's an interesting story because um, my dad was at Swindon Town as a coach, then moved to Exeter City back in the south. Um, uh, he it was, it was strange. He was the assistant coach at Exeter City and um, he was running a session one time and this um, uh, the owner of the Calgary Storm, a gentleman by the name of Mike Van Dale, and he's, his personality is huge. He's got this big, bright blonde hair, big white smile, loud voice. He's got that um, wonderful self-confidence that he could just walk into any setting and think he's been there. Apart. So he literally walked into the middle of the train session, and uh, I won't do his accent, but he was talking about um, how wonderful the session was. He's like, Man, he said, I, I got this team out in Calgary, and uh, if ever you fancy coming out, you know, would would sure love to have a, a, a great coach out there. And th- and that was it. And it was interesting because my dad, a bit like me, when I left Swindon at eighteen, I had had some scholarship opportunities to come out to the states. I think uh, Boston University was one. I think there was Florida State. I think Charleston. There was quite a few. And when this happened, my mum and him were uh, just divorced. So. He was almost going through his second wave and thought back to the days where he hadn't played. I went, you know what? I'm going to give this a chance. So he came out the year before me. I came out to visit. And then Mike Van Dale, as I said, is an incredible salesman. You know, he's in the oil and gas sector. He just said, look, you, you, you fancy running some soft camps? I hear you're a bit of a player. And I said, yeah, yeah. you know what? I had a good background. I didn't want any nepotism to happen. But I started training with the boys. And he liked what he saw. Obviously, my dad knew what I could do. And he said, look, why don't you stick around for a couple of years? And uh, and so I did. And then when the team folded, you know, that was it. So dad and I then literally went from being together to we knew in order to stay, we probably had to venture, which is is probably a good thing for me because my dad's such a big personality and of the same name. So Tommy Wielden and Tommy <laughs> Wielden times two. Um, and hence why it's Tommy Wielden Jr. because... He then went on to Calgary Blizzards and, and MVP Soccer Academy. And I went on to Pass Soccer Academy and then Calgary Foothills. Um, and I, I got to build things on my own. So it wasn't that, oh, he's doing it because he's the son of. I actually did it in my own imprint. And there's things that my dad does that are absolutely outstanding that I use today. And there's things that I thought, oh, I would do it a bit different. And I've been allowed and afforded that freedom. And you know, I've been fortunate to to be able to cut my teeth that way. So, Dad comes, you come year later. Mm-hmm. Was Dad's descriptions and stories accurate when you got here? Was it what you expected? Um, I came in the summer, so it's it's brilliant. And I think Mike Van Dale again was very very clever with my dad because he brought him over the week of the stampede. So as my dad arrives, he gets the white hat treatment. Howdy, partner, and everybody's, you know, in the cowboy mood, and everybody's socializing. Mike Van Dale had this place down in Eau Claire Market, and Joey Tomatoes is right there, and it's just in the hub of everything. So you just see that and the Bow River, and just the, the whole city is vibrating. And um, I think he sold it to him. I came a bit later in the summer, the following year. 
and I could sense just well, what a cool place. And then I ended up returning in October. So it was just starting to snow and, and getting cold. And I always remember going to the administrator at the time. She was uh, she was on the, on the desk and I said, why is it every time I step out in the cold, my nose freezes? Like, I <laughs> I can't even blow my nose. It's like my snot is just frozen. I said, I've never been anywhere in the world that my snot is frozen. What do you miss, Tommy? What do you miss at home? What, I mean, or what did, let me ask that in two parts. Originally, when you got here, what did you miss? And what do you miss today at home? Um, easy, because when I first came, I think, and as you know, the English wit is very cutting. And um, I, I think Canadian humor is very funny, very observational, but it's not personal. Whereas the English one is very cutting and personal. So I'd always remember being in locker rooms and you'd make fun of somebody's haircut or what they did or, you know, actually bring out the mistake. You know, did you think you were playing for their team today? And you'd, you'd be a bit cutting with it. And, it didn't have the laughs, or it didn't have. Um, I think it was starting to go in the other way. So I remember trying to, to adapt to that, and I missed the the ruthless English humour because I remember my mum. She's got a sharp wit, and she would probably be the biggest piss taker out of all of us, and and would say if you don't, and she's saying a Liverpool accent, if if you don't don't learn to laugh at yourself, the world won't take you serious, and then I'll cut you up, and then. Um, and as that went through, you know, through school and things like that, you had to learn to laugh at your own flaws. So it didn't become become a weakness. It became a strength. And um, I think that that's what I missed at first. And then I started de developing these British invasion camps, which actually gave me a niche. So I'd bring over friends in the game, you know, Leon Hackett, who's, who's still here now, and Steve Thomas, who's the technical director of Airdrie. Um, you know, my brother came, um, and there were several along the way, and they came over with personality and put on a bit of a show and spoke with, you know, the accent. And it's like I always said, if, if a Canadian hockey player went over to England and delivered a... You'd listen because you know that's there in their blood. And I think that's what I first missed, along with family and friends. But the more I've got here, every time I go home, when I go home every year or every other year, usually on football, is um, I look forward to coming home here. Hmm. home is where your heart is and I think now this is definitely where I feel my home and I've almost lived half my life here in Calgary so I, I, I obviously miss my dad's gone back now with with his wife uh, my mum part-time lives in England part-time lives in Cyprus with her fella uh, my sister's back there and some other friends and I do from time to time miss miss all that and I miss the you know the obsessive nature of football but I, I actually love, I love the positivity of the Canadian culture and the entrepreneurialism of the things that are still new in this country, and you can actually have a lasting effect on it. And I love the the social culture where it might be a Tuesday night, but if it's nice out in Canada, you're having a barbecue. In England, you'll wait until the weekend and then you're going out. Um, so, so yeah, um, I, I miss it less and less if I'm honest. All right, tell me where we're at because. You know, you and I, I mean, my biggest thing in life right now is I got to see my country back in the World Cup. Mexico, 86 mm -hmm. is too long ago. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen great strides taken in the women's game. But recently, you know, Davies over in, in Germany, we, there's things to be optimistic about. Give me your take on the game in the country right now as you see it. Uh, good question, Rob. I think we're... Um... I, I honestly think we're in the cusp of a golden era in the game. And, I, and I'll tell you why, because it's, it's multifaceted. 
Um, so Martin Nash is great. We have these discussions all the time. And he, he said, you know, people always talk about the 86 World Cup and, and they often forget the 2000 group that won the Gold Cup and beat Colombia in the final. Yep. Um, and that was a really good group of players that had to flee and go and play in Europe. But now he said, and we've had a couple of generations after them that have been good, but now we seem to have this cycle of not just quality players or international players. You could almost say now Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David are on the verge of, of being categorised as world-class. Um, and I think they've got the, a really good leader in John Herdman. And I know there was a lot of sceptics that says about, you know, I just come from the women's game. What does he know about the men's game? But I love the bravery of him being willing to try it because he recognised that the only way in order to move the way the world works is... And I, you can argue the case absolutely about equality. Um, and I understand that from, from the, the female's perspective. But he understood that in order to get more money into the game, that we have to qualify for World Cups um, on the men's side. And I think with the players that we have now... Um, I think we've got really good talent across the team and it's been interesting. Probably the area that could be stronger is centre-backs. There's always a history of you know Kevin McKenna's or Jason DeVos's that were strong there. You've got good defenders there, but I think when you're going to go and win something, you need good goalkeeping, uh, good centre-backs and also a good, good finishers. And then everything else you can put together. But I think there's a nice balance with Scott Arfield. There's you know, Sammy Piet that's coming through... Um, you look at some of the young blood, and I think John Urban's the right man right now because he's also he's a fantastic leader. He's a great uh, analyst of the game. He's a student of the game, but he's a wonderful visionary that he could probably talk you into selling ice to an Eskimo. And uh, I think that's what it needs. And I think he's made the players that come in, you know, from your Atiba Hutchinson's through to Alfonso Davies, proud to put on the maple leaf about what it means. I remember working with Sean Fleming at the U17 level, and he was very much like that. He would you know, make the lads look at the wall of fame of players that have blazed the trail before them and appreciate these names that they may not have known going into these camps and who they were and how they had to do it so these guys could. Again, going back to the plants and the seeds, so, so, you know, for which shadow you'd never um, feel. And uh, he would have the players sing the national anthem before breakfast. You know, that was part of the, the culture. Now you also see the Canadian Premier League and it's four Canadians by Canadians. And you look at the number of under 21 minutes that they were required to be played by every single club. You're just creating this infrastructure of administrators, of coaches, of referees, of supporters. Now we're having facilities being built. So every single CPL club, not only your know, first point was to get off a, um, a stadium, now it's training facilities. Now it's, you know, yep. you, if there's no video analysts out there, now we're having to train them. So we're really educating a culture and, and bringing it with us. So back to your point, um, we're in a good place. Um, I think it's going to be tough to qualify for this World Cup with the lack of games now. And we're on the cusp of the hex, which is a tough competition to get through. But, you know, I, I think it's. Uh, I think we've got a good generation of players coming through that will only get stronger through the CPL and the MLS and the players that are over in Europe. So, as an observer of the game, and, and the predates even your arrival in this country, it was so easy always to say, "Ah, the politics of the game. Ah, we don't have the right leadership. We don't have the structures." What I'm hearing in your answer is the players are coming, but also the structures there. That you know, we're we're beginning to 
to be serious about it, to take it serious, to do the things that we needed to do. I mean, we had to have our own league. I mean, yeah. that, 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 I don't think we ever, it's funny. I don't think we ever talked enough about that. Like we needed to get to our own development league. We now have that. Mm-hmm. Will we have, do we have an identity now? Do we have a soccer identity or a football identity? I believe that you know, the country often embodies um, a DNA and, 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 and you often don't know why or how it's, you know, and there'll always be tactical iterations for every country. So I look at the way the French play and there's a, there's art to it. There's a slight element of confidence or arrogance to it. There's a physicality to it. Um, there's speed and, and you go over and I was just in Paris in the, in um in january i think no yeah january with with my wife and you look around and you look at just art and you and you look at well-dressed people you look at patients where you know they'll they'll sit and have a coffee and a conversation and the french are like that i, I think the italians you know the same thing it was, it was there too and they're patient in the way they play the game there's, a, there's an elegance to it they're you know, they look after what they have. They're okay with a one-goal game. If the team, if we score and they don't, we're, we're okay. It doesn't have to be 5-0, but they appreciate the fine things in life. And a goal is the fine thing in life. It's the most pristine thing you can do. So when they score it, they protect it. Um, like they do their art and their culture. Uh, you know, the Dutch are very flamboyant. And um, the Brazilians, uh, you look at a carnival atmosphere and everything, it's an entertainment. You know, you look at the English, um, proud nation of warriors um uh, and and we will go into any battle and come up against whoever we think we are uh, and we'll and we'll try and take over um uh, you look at the germans and their efficiency and their organization you look at, you know they're great watchmakers and engineers with cars and, and their teams operate around that ethos and i could go on and on and um which brings me to what i thought i asked my staff what i thought embodied what Canada is, entrepreneurial, uh, new, uh, melting pot of cultures, um, polite, <laughs> uh, competitive, um, friendly, uh, curious, you know, because it still is a new new country and it's uh, it's curious. It's so there's a lot of these words. Um, athletic because you you look now and the amount of people that are out on their bikes and running and and, and you do it is a very you know multi-sports and you know kids going out to hockey practice and it is it's a very athletic country or you go out hiking and go out in the wilderness so when you start embodying all of those you say right what what are we missing well we're missing years and years of tactical evolution so why don't we put together teams that play to our strength so for us we've been really trying to heavy load on the tactics because we think that that could be you know something that we could use as a as a as a pivot point for us because we that could be an advantage we've gained but you know we're athletic we also said in the cavalry what did we want it to look like well the cavalry embodies this motion that they're there when you need them um they'll back each other up so every time we scored we would celebrate together if there was a goal action in front of our net we we died for the cause um we were fast we were exciting we were together. Um, so I think we are starting to see that culture. Um, I think the, the referees then lend to it because they see the game in a certain way that they'll let some of these physical fouls go that maybe if you were in South America or, or you were in um, you know, Spain, may not happen. You yeah. know, The referees might, oh, that's too physical. But we, we appreciate 
a Canadian appreciates hard work. Definitely some entrepreneurial. There's a bit of creativity happen, happening with, with some of these teams that we're seeing. Um, ingenuity, entrepreneurial. You're looking at the, the effect now. Mark DeSantis has gone into his second year at, at Whitecaps after trying to rebuild and across our league. You, you're seeing there's 110%. There's hard work. You've got to be able that's a, that's your minimum buy-in. I know it's easy to say in professional sports, but it's not it's not easily done. A lot of, a lot of athletes rely on talent. Um, so yeah, I think we are finding our, our niche. I think we are bright, we are polite, but we will we will play to win, and I think it's coming through too. Awesome. Listen, my last question is the same question I ask all my guests on this very podcast. I will not give you parameters. You answer it any way you want. Tommy Wielder Jr., give me your hidden Calgary gem. Oh, well, as in um, it, a restaurant? Or? Anything you want, sir. Anything you want. Uh, easy, because because I live quite a busy life um, within the game, being a manager. You know, the work doesn't stop when the training stops. As, as you know, it's a lot of analysis, a lot of conversations, a lot of negotiations, a lot of paperwork. So for me, you know, it, once I'm done that, it's my kids' sports and the family. So the hidden gem is um, Stephen Avenue. And i tell you why, because... I still like a little bit of history. You know, that's probably, um, I still like where Calgary was and how it began. And um, Stephen Avenue, I think, represents it. There's, you know, if you can go on a, a, you know, happy hour on Friday, and if I ever get those weekends off or off season, my wife and I will go down there and we'll pick a restaurant. Um, we'll, we'll go for a dinner there. We'll go to go get a cocktail somewhere else. And then we'll stay downtown. And so we'll, we'll stay at the Hyatt, which is right by the, the Calgary Tower. And so for us, was we wanted to appreciate, we live in you know Mackenzie Lake, we're, we're out in the suburbs, got a great view of downtown and Fish Creek, but we like to go into the heart of Calgary and appreciate it for its fine dining. Um, we're foodies like that. <laughs> and just stay there and, and let the world walk past us. And uh, I think Stephen Avenue and the Calgary Tower, and I think that represents... A lot of what Calgary is, it was it was built on on banks and oil and gas and uh, and, and the Bow River, and it's very hard working. So we, we try to soak that in when we can. Awesome, dude! Thank you so much for this. Uh, you know I'm your number one fan. Um, I just think the world of you. I think what you've accomplished is amazing. I would recommend the Long Game as the title of your autobiography. Um, <laughs> because I think you've done it better yeah. than anybody I've ever seen. So well, you Tom- can co-write it because I think. <laughs> well, congratulations on your success. You, uh, my wife and my parents would probably read it. So um, <laughs> thanks, mate, and appreciate it. Stay safe. How good was that? He is uh, the gaffer, I believe, is the the term for him. Um, he has uh, everything he said. He has followed through. And he's done. He is one of the most important people in the sports scene in Calgary right now and just love spending time with Tommy. Thanks to him for making some for us today. Thanks to all of our guests lately. I uh, hope you've caught them. Uh, the likes of uh, we've had, geez, who did we have on? Uh, Perry Berzan and Colin Patterson. That was a fun conversation about the uh, history of the SO3 on 3 pond hockey tournament. Brent Cron was on it. We got a lot of feedback on Brent Cron. Uh, people really enjoying that conversation because how raw and open and honest Brent was as well. Sam Effa, who is a ball of energy, uh, Canada's fastest human. He just he's great, and he's going to be an Olympian, and he's going to be a great Olympian. And uh, looking for so those are the types of people we get on this very here podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed right now by going to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the original Six Feet Conversation Podcast. SportCalgary.ca.